the old pilot's plane tails. 34 seconds to touchdown. Many pilots of my generation have oft quoted the old saying that they only fly a four-engine aircraft because no one will give them one with five engines. This attitude in the context of modern aviation is patently old-fashioned and harks back to an era when engine problems were considerably more common than today. Modern engine design and sophisticated monitoring has increased jet engine reliability to levels previously unachievable. On a twin-engined aircraft, it is almost unheard of to lose both engines simultaneously, but it has happened. When it occurs, it's often down to one of the few links that the engines share, and of those, problems with the fuel is by far the most common. Fuel starvation or contamination is something that the industry takes very seriously. However, despite our confidence in the power plant strapped to our wings, nature still has a way of catching us out. My last two tales were a fascinating interview with Adam Spink, the supervisor in the Heathrow Tower, when a 777 Speedbird 38 lost power and crashed into the undershoot of runway 27 left. Having seen that accident from Adam's point of view, I thought it would be interesting to look at the causes from a technical aspect and see how it unfolded within the cockpit. The accident aircraft, a Boeing 777, is a very common sight in the sky since it ranks as one of Boeing's best-selling models and it has overtaken the old 747 as Boeing's most produced wide-body jet. It beat off competition from the Airbus A340, and its only rivals are the Airbus A330 and A350. It has a fly-by-wire control system that, like many Airbus models, has flight envelope protection that prevents stalls, overspeeds, and overstresses. It came into service with United in 1995 and has never looked back, with over 1,500 airframes rolling off the production line. It has an excellent dispatch reliability, and there have only been seven hull losses, the very first of which was Speedbird 3.8 on January 17, 2008. This service was returning to London's Heathrow Airport from Beijing in China and was carrying a small load of 136 passengers and a total of 16 crew. At Beijing, the aircraft had been loaded with over 71 metric tonnes, that's a little over 157,000 pounds, of Jet A1 fuel, with a freezing point of minus 47 degrees centigrade. Aviation fuel for jets comes in various styles, such as JP-1, JP-3, etc., which are military fuels, and Jet-A and Jet-A-1, which are the most commonly used civil fuels. Jet-B is a wide-cut fuel, with 30% kerosene and 70% petrol, and because of its low freezing point, it's mainly used in northern Canada, Alaska, and other regions where it's particularly cold. Jet-A is usually found in the United States, 
but it has the worst freezing point of the common fuels. The fuel on board Flight 38 was Jet A-1, which is common outside of the United States and is superior in several aspects. It has a freezing point of minus 47 degrees C against minus 40, plus an anti-static additive. During long-haul flights, particularly those that route into the northern latitudes, because of the low outside air temperatures that can be encountered, minus 70 degrees centigrade or below is not uncommon, a close eye is kept on the fuel temperatures to ensure that the fuel doesn't freeze inside the aircraft's tanks. The lowest temperature that Flight 38 encountered was minus 64 degrees centigrade, which might have eventually caused a problem with fuel temperatures, but with the warming friction that occurs, the total air temperature was only minus 37 degrees centigrade, leading to a lowest fuel temperature of only minus 34 degrees centigrade. This might seem a low temperature, but with a 12 degree buffer between the actual fuel temperature and the fuel freezing point, the crew wouldn't have had any concerns. As an aside, managing fuel temperatures is something that crews become very used to. If the fuel temperature starts to get close to the freezing point, there are several strategies that can be employed. If the aircraft is flown faster, the additional friction will warm the airframe a few degrees, which may be all that is needed. The cruising altitude can be reduced to a warmer level, or depending on the aircraft design, the cold fuel can be moved and mixed with warmer fuel in other tanks. Flight 38 did restrict its cruising level initially to flight level 348, that's 10,600 metres, because the air was forecast to be extremely cold around the Chinese-Mongolian border but after that it climbed to flight level 400. Although the fuel temperature only got to a rather chilly minus 34, it did remain there for quite some time. As the flight approached London, it descended and took up the hold at Lambourne at flight level 110 for five minutes, before being vectored onto the instrument landing system for runway 27 left at Heathrow. As is common with British Airways, the pilot who was flying the aircraft at that point wasn't the pilot who would be conducting the landing. It happened that it was the first officer's turn to land, so the captain was initially the handling pilot. He set the aircraft up on the ILS and had it properly configured for landing with the autopilot and autothrottle engaged, the gear down, and the flap at 30, its landing position. At 800 feet above the runway, he handed control to the first officer. Shortly after taking control, with the automatic still engaged, the autothrottles commanded an increase in thrust, and although the engines initially responded, at around 720 feet, the thrust on the right engine reduced. Seven seconds later, the thrust on the left engine also reduced. There were no warnings, no red lights and master caution alarms. This was a subtle and insidious failure. 
The engines didn't fail as such, but they rolled back to a little over flight idle power and much less than was being commanded by the throttles. With 48 seconds to landing, the first officer noticed that the throttles were split in that the lever positions no longer matched with one another, but this wasn't an uncommon event. At 500 feet, the radio altimeter called out the height above the ground and Heathrow Tower gave a landing clearance. All this time, the aircraft was slowly decelerating and would have started to drift below the glide path except for the autopilot, which was demanding a higher nose attitude to stay at the correct angle. At 430 feet, the captain called that the approach was stable, but the first officer, perhaps starting to realise that things were a bit unusual, replied, Just? It was 34 seconds before touchdown. By now, the airspeed had fallen below the expected approach speed of 135 knots, and both pilots realised that the engines were at idle power. They attempted to identify the cause, but when the thrust levers were both pushed up to full power, the engines completely failed to respond. When the speed reached 115 knots, the airspeed low warning enunciated along with the master warning. Realising that they needed less drag in order to reach the runway, the captain raised the flap from flap 30 to flap 25, and he attempted to switch on the engine igniters. Still trying to work out what had happened to his engines, the captain did not get out a brace call to the cabin, although he did put out a mayday call, but with the wrong flight number. However, as we know from Adam's interview on the previous tales, the tower had quickly assessed that a crash was imminent. Now below 200 feet, and at only 108 knots, the stick shaker activated, warning the first officer that he was approaching the stall. He pushed the stick forward, which disconnected the autopilot, and as they approached the ground, he pulled back in an attempt to cushion the impact. The aircraft struck the grass-covered undershoot before the runway hard, about 330 metres short of the paved surface, and only 110 metres inside the perimeter fence. Behind them were busy roads and buildings, including the Hatton Cross Underground Railway Station. On impact, both the nose wheel and the main landing gear collapsed, the right gear separating completely from the wing. Dragging itself along on its belly and engine pods, the aircraft decelerated very quickly, slewing a little to the right and coming to rest at the start of the paved surface. Lying like a wounded bird, the 777 bled fuel which gushed from the damaged tanks and the engine fuel pipes until the spar valves were manually closed later. The captain called for a passenger evacuation, but instead of selecting the passenger address system, he mistakenly transmitted the announcement over the radio on the tower frequency. Once the controller had corrected his error, he repeated the call over the PA system before completing the evacuation checklist and escaping the aircraft with his crew. 
The cabin crew supervised the emergency evacuation via the slides and, quite miraculously, only one passenger was seriously injured, suffering a broken leg that occurred when parts of the right main gear penetrated the cabin. There were 16 minor injuries. The fire crews were on the scene after a mere 1 minute 43 seconds, but despite the fuel and oxygen leaks from the disrupted passenger oxygen bottles, mercifully, there was no fire. The passenger evacuation was completed shortly after the arrival of the fire vehicles. The investigation into the near-simultaneous engine failures was complicated. By the time investigators were able to access the scene, any traces of ice in the fuel had long since disappeared, but they were able to take uncontaminated samples of fueled test. The fuel proved to be completely normal, and the amount of water within the fuel was within the expected range. The freezing point was tested and found to be lower than the Jet A1 limit of minus 47 at minus 57 degrees centigrade, making fuel freezing even less likely. The fuel system appeared to have been functioning normally, but examination was able to establish that there had been a fuel flow restriction. In order to locate the problem area, the fuel system was rebuilt using actual pipes, screens, pumps and the fuel oil heat exchangers salvaged from the wrecked 777 and set up in the Boeing Propulsion Laboratory at North Boeing Field. This facility could reproduce the climatic conditions that Flight 38 encountered to isolate the reason for the engine rollbacks. They knew that the blockages had occurred upstream of the high-pressure pumps, as those pumps had left witness marks when they cavitated due to a lack of fuel. An enormous amount of work was done to ensure that the conditions of the test would duplicate the flight with different components being cooled to different temperatures, as would have happened on the real aircraft. Suspicion soon fell onto the inlet to the fuel-oil heat exchanger. As is common with modern jet engine design, the oil within the engine is cooled by passing fuel through this heat exchanger. This also has the advantage of warming the fuel. Having passed through the heat exchanger, the fuel would then continue its journey on to the high-pressure fuel pump and then into the engine. Despite having a better-than-normal freezing point, it was proved that ice could form on the inside of the fuel pipes leading up to the heat exchanger, much in the way that plaque can form on the inside of an artery. However, the conditions had to be just right. If the fuel flowed too fast, or the temperature was too high or too low, then nothing would happen. At a particular set of conditions, it was discovered that a build-up of ice would consistently occur throughout the pipe system. This slushy deposit could then be released to form a barrier on the face of the heat exchanger inlet blocking the flow of fuel. When the temperature profile for the tests 
was laid against that flown by the accident aircraft on the day, the graphs almost completely matched. The face of the fuel oil heat exchanger was capable of melting the ice that blocked it, but only if the engines were throttled back to idle for a spell. With the prospect of landing well short of the runway, this would hardly have been an option that the crew would have considered even had they known about it. There was no suggestion that a design error had been made by either Boeing or Rolls-Royce. The certification of the aircraft had been correctly performed, albeit on data that was decades old, and the analysis proved that the near-unique features of the power settings used on that particular flight exacerbated the problem. Despite the unlikelihood of the situation reoccurring, the design of the heat exchanger faceplate was changed to prevent ice from blocking it in future. The crew on this aircraft were faced with a massive problem that nobody ever imagined would happen, and with only seconds to analyse and correct the problem. There was no checklist, no emergency drill or procedure to follow. They were completely in the dark. The first officer did a good job of handling the aircraft, and the captain's flap reduction assisted the glide distance by over 50 metres, preventing a possible landing amongst the ILS aerials, which could have caused considerably more damage to the aircraft and resulted in more injuries. Overall, it was a remarkably good outcome, a lesson to aircraft and engine manufacturers and all those in the field that we are still a young industry and we need to keep that learning curve pointing upwards. If you enjoyed this Plain Tale, please leave a review at Apple Podcasts. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.